0: The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as our sermon text, comes from Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Our God, as we gather together, as we come to hear your word proclaimed We ask indeed, Lord, that you would use it to your own glory, that you would use your servant mightily, and that you would soften hard hearts and open blind eyes to hear. Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Who doesn't love a second chance? Who doesn't love... Being able to make things right after we've really messed something up. You know, the husband who uh, forgets his anniversary and he's going to spend the night on the couch or in the doghouse. Suddenly he gets that reservation to the restaurant that's booked solid for the next several months and suddenly all is well again. Or the baseball team that uh, loses the championship game and gets another crack at the title the next year. A chance to undo what has been done a chance to start over fresh i mean we love these stories of second chances we love hearing or seeing people redeem themselves and make things right and hollywood picks up on this theme and they use it again and again i mean that's what most romantic comedies are about right it's a second chance at love after the first relationship has fallen to pieces it's not just romantic comedies. It's why Rocky II was better than Rocky One because it's about man, a man, getting a second chance, a chance to redeem himself and beat the opponent he couldn't beat the first time. Or Cinderella Man, or Biscuit. The, na- the list goes on and on. Hollywood capitalizes on this concept of, that it all boils down to of someone getting a second chance to redeem themselves from their previous failures and we eat it up we love these stories we love to hear stories of people who receive second chances we love watching these kinds of movies about people redeeming themselves about people getting another crack at life and turning themselves around I mean really we root for the people who have messed up their lives in irreparable ways And yet they want to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They want to fix things, turn over a new leaf, and start over fresh. Erasing all of the old failures that have happened and starting over with a clean slate. People of God, as we've been looking at this account of Noah for the last three weeks or so, it seems as though that is what the story of Noah is all about. Maybe that's why it is loved so much. I mean, in many ways, this text has been moving in a particular direction. Noah has been presented as one who may indeed be the second Adam, who has come to undo all the problems of the world that Adam brought into it by his sinning against God. And because Noah has been found righteous in the eyes of God, Noah is counted a saint of saints that has how he is presented in the text again and again. His piety far exceeds anything that we could hope for in this world. And as we read this text, the promise of Genesis 3 hangs in the background. Is this man the one? Is this man the warrior promised who would deliver mankind from our sin and misery, the one who has promised to do battle with the serpent of old. Is this the one who will bring the rest promised to the world? I mean, just think of who Noah is. Here is one who every time we hear the Bible speak about Noah's actions, they are actions of faith, they are actions of a man who is righteous, Again and again we hear this refrain Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do he obeyed his God and the question is here is he the one come to undo the curse upon the world is he doing what Adam could not do restoring the world to what it was before the fall for surely it seems that as though all things are being made th- through no, all things are being made new through him even the earth has been refreshed and restarted, being presented as a new creation. The waters of judgment have receded from the face of the earth, and it has been reformed. And now all those who were upon the ark and received the same commission as Adam, just as he was told to be fruitful and multiply upon the face of the earth, so too Noah receives the same thing. And the question hanging In the background, as you read the entirety of the narrative, is is humanity getting a second chance? Are they getting a chance to right the wrongs done by their forefathers? Are the deeds of sinful humanity about to be wiped out forever? Are they being given a clean sheet? And all of these thoughts hang in the air as we come to our text, where we witness the fall of Noah. The fall of Noah. Our text opens up in verse 18, and despite how this text has been building towards writing of Adam's wrong, towards the fixing of what Adam has done in this second chance idea, right away we're clued into the fact that things are about to go awry. Something is amiss, and verse 18 acts as a warning sign that something is not right, and this scene is not going to end well. verse 18 repeats again that Noah's sons who exited the ark with Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we get this repeated motif and idea of who the sons of Noah are. But then we get this little sidebar that says, Oh, by the way, Ham, he was the father of Canaan. And suddenly it changes everything. The scene shifts from one of hope and anticipation to one of suspicion. One that we are on guard for. Because you have to remember the context that Moses is writing to. As Moses is writing these words before us, he is writing them to a nation that is wandering in the wilderness of Israel. He writes these words to a nation that God has promised to their forefather Abraham that they would possess a land, a land that is flowing with milk and with honey, a good land, a land that is good for food and pleasing to the eye, filled with many streams and cool waters, filled with the fruit of the vine, filled with the fruit of the field. And God has promised this nation that they would inherit this good land called Cana. But as they prepare to enter That land, they send spies into the land to see what kind of opponents, what kind of opposition they're going to face. And those spies come back saying, we saw giants in the land. We saw Canaanites there. They are here in this land. And as the people of Israel prepare to enter and conquer this land, all they can see is a land that is filled with the enemies of God. That is who the Canaanites are. Israel has seen a land filled with a people hostile to God and his promises and his people. That is who Moses is connecting Ham here to. That people who are opposed to God and his promises. That people who now occupy the land of promise. That people is who is supposed to come to your mind when you read those words. The Father of Canaan. Moses is making it very explicit how we are to interpret the scene that will follow. And suddenly there is no escaping the fact that the seed of the serpent is alive and well and again preparing to do battle with the seed of of God, the line of the godly. Two seeds are still at war with one another ever since Genesis chapter 3. And the flood hasn't changed that. And that's what this text is saying. The flood has not changed it. What we are about to witness unfold, it's almost as though we're back to square one with Adam and his children at war with one another. And even as we read these words about Canaan, suddenly it's clear that these two people are about to be at war with one another, even as Israel will face Canaan in the near future and the Canaanites. And these two peoples... Represented in three men in our text fill the earth with their children and they begin to multiply upon the old earth, giving you an idea that the world will be divided between these two lines yet again. The same pattern that was true of old in the ancient world holds true in the time of, of Noah. And as Moses uh, sets this stage, he shifts our attention back to righteous Noah who plants a vineyard. Noah returns his attention to the soil just as he labored at it before with his father, just as he harvested it in order to prepare food to be brought onto the ark. So Noah, again now, he is returning his hand to the plow and the text moves very quickly through a series of his actions. It moves from Noah's planting to his drinking. It moves from his drinking to his becoming drunk and from his drunkenness to his lying naked and ashamed in his own tent. It's a very quick progression of of events and movements. It's very rapid in its succession. It doesn't slow down, but sort of barrels on until it comes to this high point of Noah's nakedness. And the text highlights it. You'll notice that word repeated several times there. How Noah no longer looks like he's the man who's come to give the world a second chance because now Noah follows in Adam's footsteps almost exactly. Noah takes the fruit, and as a result of that, he too, in the end, Will be naked and ashamed by his actions and sin against God. He takes something that was a good thing and corrupts it by the evil in his heart. That is what sin does. That is the heart of all sins. If you can't connect to Noah because he is a drunkard, sought—I mean, connect to it in this way. Sin corrupts good things and uses them for evil. Sin manifests itself most often in our lives in this way. It comes from a good desire, from desiring good things and turning them into idols of the heart. You know, it's a good thing to get grades in school, but it can become an idol if you can't live with yourself when you get a bad one. Or if you expect your children to make only good grades. Within the bounds of marriage, sex is a good thing and a beautiful gift from God. Scripture even affirms that idea, but outside of marriage, it becomes a grievous sin. And Scripture tells us elsewhere that wine is in fact a good thing. It is good to make the heart glad. And God even found it pleasing to offer before the Lord in Numbers 15. And 1 Timothy 4 expands on it and says, Everything created by God is good, including food and marriage. Nothing is to be rejected if it comes from his hand, but received with thanksgiving. And yet sin takes these good things and twists them into idols, turning everything into shame that will destroy us utterly in the end. Our hearts are idol factories, and we can turn any good thing into an idol, then that is exactly what Noah does here by drinking in excess, abusing this good gift of God to his own shame. He takes a good gift of wine from God and through the wicked desires of his heart turns it into an idol. And it leads to his shame, that is the direct road it takes it on. But what is so hard to see in this text is that this is Noah Noah who second peter tells us was a preacher of righteousness and now he is a drunken sot you know he is a walking wineskin here is a man who has lived a righteous life for over 600 years. This man has lived righteous before God, and he has been counted blameless. He has been considered a saint up until this point. He drinks, and then suddenly he drinks too much wine and loses everything. And it is terrifying to say, but we are never so old that we can't fall into horrendous and grievous sins. You've never come to that point. David sinned with Bathsheba when he was in his 50s. Solomon departed from God when he was advanced in years. Moses grows angry with the people of God and sinned in his 80s by striking a rock and taking some of God's glory for himself. And here is Noah, who sins and becomes drunk over 600, when he is over 600 years old. Oh, don't ever think there is a time that you will arrive and are above sinning because that is exactly when you will indeed fall. As we not only witness here Noah's fall, we see Noah's fall has ramifications and in fact it leads to Ham's reproach, Ham's reproach. As we come to verse 22, it tells us that Ham saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers outside. And the text quickly moves on from Ham. And yet his sin is just as central to this text as Noah's sin. Because shortly after this whole scene unfolds, Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor. And the text tells us Noah knew what Ham had done. And he cursed his line saying, cursed is Canaan, a servant of servants, he will be for his brothers. So what is the big deal with Ham's sin? I mean, it it doesn't seem to get much airtime. Yet he receives this curse. What has he done that is so grievous that entitles his entire line to be cursed? What was his sin especially? Well, there is some speculation Uh, by the rabbis in the Jewish church who argued that Ham committed some sort of sexual or homosexual activity with his father. And others even say, you know, he he may have castrated him in his shame. But honestly, those are just uh, speculations. There is nothing that legitimately supports those claims from the text itself. Yet, if you look at the text more closely... And that what Ham does, there really are uh, is a grievous sin here, and it's a multifaceted sin. It has several dimensions to it. And the most obvious uh, side is that, according to uh, one commentator, it is uh, prurient voyeurism. And I like how he words that, not because of the big words he uses, uh, but because it's sensitive to the audience. Um, it gives you all something to look up in the dictionary later today, prurient. Uh, but basically... There is some act of lewdness or lustful action taking place here. And the text doesn't get explicit, but it doesn't need to get explicit. It doesn't need to be. There is some sort of unholy gratification in Ham as he looks upon the nakedness of his father. Beyond this, clearly he is disrespecting his father. Here is his parent. Here is the man from whom he has come. And instead of respecting His privacy and respecting his person, he stands in Noah's tent gazing at him, the head of all living at this point, the head of the family, the patriarch of the world at this point, and even his high priest, his pastor, the one who stood before him and offered a sacrifice upon the altar when they got off of the ark and would continue to do so in that standpoint. And now... He stands here gazing at him. And ultimately, you know, not only is there a sexual sin here, but he is disrespecting his father, his parent, his, his, his pastor. And then he revels in Noah's failure. I mean, the text tells us that Noah leaves the tent, and the very next action, without missing a beat, is, uh, you know, he tells his brother. You get the impression he practically runs to tell his brother. And after reading this, you know, it sounds innocent enough, but as you dig into it, you will not come across a single commentary, a single person who has studied this text, who believes this is a neutral statement. There is an overwhelming sense that Ham comes laughing at his father. He is reveling in and celebrating the sins of Noah. He is mocking how far his father has fallen. You know, this one who was righteous in the eyes of the Lord now lies drunken and naked and ashamed. And instead of mourning, Ham mocks Noah's fall. It's as though he's saying he's no better than the rest of us. You know, and I got to see it firsthand. Go in. Japheth and Shem, go in and take a look for yourself what kind of godly man this preacher of righteousness is. You know, it's as though Ham has irrepressible joy at witnessing the fall and shame and degradation of Noah, delighting in his sin. And James Boyce says on this, the only thing worse than committing a specific sin is the devilish delight of finding out and reveling in the sins of others. And so Ham's sin multiplies itself. It continues to spread. You see this multifaceted thing. And it climaxes in his mocking of his father, his priest, all because Noah fell. But the sin of Noah and the sin of Ham ultimately both lead to the blessing of Shem and Japheth. The blessing of Shem and Japheth. When Noah awakens this prophet of old and preacher of righteousness, knowing what Ham did, he curses the line of Ham. He curses Canaan in particular, but Canaan represents the whole of Ham's line. You'll notice, and we'll get into it more when we get to chapter 10, but Ham's line is filled with the enemies of the people of God. Ham's father is the father of Egypt, who oppressed Israel for 400 years. He is the father of Babylon, who would come and conquer portions of Israel. He is the father of Assyria, all of whom, and in the Old, by the time you come to the Old Testament, they all prove themselves to be enemies against the people of Israel. And Noah curses all of God's enemies in this one prophecy proclaiming cursed are those who like their father Ham despise both God and his people who mock the people of God when they fall when they revel in sin. But Noah doesn't end his prophecy here. He goes on to pronounce a blessing on his other two sons, Shem and Japheth. When he was naked and ashamed, they covered him. They would not even chance looking upon his nakedness, but they walked backward in the tent in order to maintain his honor, and to cover his shame. They didn't ignore Noah's sin, you'll notice. You know, they didn't walk away from the tent. They didn't pretend nothing happened until he was done and had recovered. They didn't hide it under the rug. You know, they looked full in the face, of his drunkenness and his sin, and they forgave him of his drunkenness. They covered over him. What kind of men are these? You know, men who would forgive a priest of such a terrible sin and indeed cover over his shame and not look upon him. It is quite a contrast to Ham who revels in Noah's and so Noah in his pronouncement over his children, he blesses his two sons, beginning with the oldest. And he blesses Shem, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, who the one who Shem worships and follows. The Lord is Shem's God. And Shem is God's child. You know, it it's the first indicator in this narrative. That the nation of Israel, the whole people of God, who are called children of God, will come from the line of Shem. The line of Jews flows through the loins of Shems. And it is the first hint in this narrative that God just might have something better in mind than giving his people a second chance to undo their own problems. Because through the line of Shem, Noah is declaring that this one will be God's people. And truly, the second Adam will indeed come, and it will come through the line of Shem. God will still honor the promise that he made long ago, but it will not be through Noah. Yet it will come through his loins. It will come through the line of Shem himself. God elects and chooses Shem to be the one through whom the Christ would come and deliver many from their sins. But Shem is not the only one who receives a blessing here. You know Japheth too receives a good word from Noah. He is not forgotten in his righteous deeds. Noah says, "May God enlarge Japheth, and may it be that he will dwell in the tents of Shem." And it seems like a strange blessing. What does he mean by that? Maybe he be enlarged May he enlarge in Japheth and may he dwell in Shem's tents. What is going on here is that Japheth is being established as a line of Gentiles in the world who would eventually be brought into the people of God. Now this people from every nation, from every tribe and tongue who would turn to Shem's line for salvation. Japheth is the father of Gentiles who seek after God, who recognize the God of of Israel, who run to the tents of Shem for their hope and their salvation, for their shelter. And they will find rest and hope under the shadows of Christ and his wings in the family line or the tents of Shem. And Japheth receives his blessing. His people will not be forgotten, though it will take many years for its fulfillment. And both Japheth and Shem, Noah asks that Canaan would be their servants, that they would be servants of servants, the lowest of lows, and that he and those like him, those in his family like Ham, who would imitate their father, that they would indeed become the servants of the people of God. What do we make of all of this? I mean, how do we interpret the account of Noah that starts out so promising that here is our new hope, our second chance to do things right, and it ends in drunkenness and the sins of the father being passed to the sins of the son followed by a cursing and these blessings. How do we make sense of it all? People of God, think of it this way. If our hope is built on nothing more than that God might be giving us a second chance, then our hope is sorely misplaced. You know, because according to Scripture, second chances don't work You see this in the life of Noah before you. Second chances don't work, even if it were possible to erase completely what we have done and go back and wipe the sleep entirely clean. From Adam, our forefather on... We too, just like Noah, would mess up our chance at redeeming ourselves. We wouldn't be able to make things right. We would continue to cry out again and again, God, just give me one more chance to do things right. Just give me one more chance to make things right. To become the man or woman that I am supposed to be. We fail our God and we are so easily enticed by the idols of our hearts. We are prone to excesses of every kind, and yet somehow we convince ourselves over and over again, if I can just do this one thing right next time, maybe God will love me better for who I am. Maybe it will make up for the last time I screwed up. Maybe it will be meaningful this time. But God has planned something better than this from the very beginning. He knew Noah would never live perfectly before him. Noah is too deeply affected by Adam's sin. He knew Noah would sin against him terribly. He knew we would need something better than a second chance to redeem ourselves and our actions. He knew we needed a redeemer. He knew we would need someone to come and undo all that Adam had destroyed. And we would truly need someone to come and make his people new creations to deliver us even from our need to fix things on our own. He paid a price and he sought us and he bought us and he pitied us when we were enemies, unable to fix our brokenness. When we were lying drunken and ashamed, he looked on us with pity and with compassion and he sent one to cover over our sins to make things right with God. He doesn't hide it underneath the rug. He doesn't pretend it never happens. He deals with our sin and he does throw through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And people of God, may we indeed flee from our sins. You know, may we resolve and re- to not revel in the sins of others, or delight in wickedness. May we seek moderation as we partake in the good gifts that God has given to us. But most of all, let us stop asking God for a second chance to make things right for ourselves before him. Let us instead acknowledge that we are sinners in need of forgiveness and ask for it. Because in Christ, God has done something far greater than offer a second chance, something that sounds indeed too good to be true. But it is not too good to be true. He has shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. And people of God, this is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He has shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to find a way to make things right on your own, but turn to Jesus. Flee to him, for with him, grace and mercy and forgiveness can be found. Amen. Let us pray.
1: Our Father, we come
0: before you, and we confess often we do not believe the goodness of your gospel. We know that you come and you forgive us, through Christ Jesus, and yet we constantly are seeking ways to improve ourselves apart from him. Father, we pray that you would help us to look full in the face of our sin, recognize that we are unable to fix ourselves and that we need a savior, one who washes us whiter than snow. And Father, truly, we ask that you would cause us to live a godly, righteous, and moral life in light of what you have done out of gratitude, for what you have done, to abandon drunkenness, to abandon our excesses, to abandon the idols of our heart. Father, we pray indeed that you would free us from these things. Help us to not see ourselves as men or women who are ever above reproach, who are beyond an age where we can sin grievously against God. We pray, Father, that you would protect us from our great and horrible misdeeds. We pray, Lord, that you would save us from ourselves. And we pray that you would continue and evermore to draw us close to your Savior, our Savior, and through whom we can enter into your presence. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.